We love to sing of the greatness of God, and certainly is the, it is the text of our message. There's a whole world that needs to know how great our God is. The Bible says that that's the purpose of God throughout history, is world evangelization, that they might know how great God is. As a result, He's given us the heavens. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows His handiwork. There is a testimony to God's greatness that is all around through creation. And yet his greatness and power only seen through the universe, only through, seen through creation is just one side of his greatness. Because the other part of God's greatness is that he sent his only beloved son or his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Folks, you wouldn't know about the Lord Jesus Christ unless there were God's special revelation, his word and then the written or the living word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ who came. And he came to seek and to save that which was lost. Not only from a select group, but he came to seek those from all over the world. So that people from every kindred and every tribe and every tongue might come to know him. In other words, world evangelization is God's plan. It's always been God's plan from the very beginning. Some people would take an issue with that. They say world evangelization, missions, that really started recently with men such as William Carey. After all, William Carey was a man who had a vision, had a burden and a desire to leave England, which had been saturated with the gospel message. There were churches everywhere. He had a desire to leave England and go to those pagan parts of the world that had never heard the name Jesus. And so he left England, the comforts of England, to go to India where he lived, served, translated uh, scriptures and taught people. And eventually he was used to see the gospel come to the Indian people and millions have come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But... Modern missions, William Carey, that's not the beginning of world evangelization. The purpose of world evangelization has to go far beyond that. You look at the Apostle Paul. He gave his life to spreading the gospel, not just among the Jews there in Palestine, but he said, my purpose is to go and be an apostle to the Gentiles. He went all throughout the world, desiring even to get so far as Spain, where he'd be proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. But world evangelization goes far even before the Apostle Paul in the New Testament times. We know that from the New Testament, the Bible says, how will they hear without a preacher? How can they hear or how can they call upon him whom they have not heard? How can they call upon the Lord and be saved unless someone tells them? And how can someone tell them unless someone be sent? And so this whole idea of world evangelization certainly goes beyond William Carey, goes beyond Paul in the New Testament times. It goes back even to the Old Testament days. The Old Testament days such as Isaiah 49 and verse 6 where God is declaring to the people of Israel, I will give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. That was God's purpose. It's to reveal Himself to His chosen people but to not be exclusive only to the children of Israel but to use the children of Israel to proclaim the good news of God and His salvation to the ends of the earth so that others might come to that saving knowledge as well. But you know something? If God can't use His own people such as the people of Israel who had failed at that time to represent Him if God can't use His own people He will somehow he will somehow bring the good news of who He is to people, even if He has to speak through pagan kings. That is what Daniel 4 is all about. Would you turn with me to Daniel 4? And as you're turning to Daniel 4, I'd like to also read to you from the psalmist. Psalm 96 verifies the reality of world evangelization having been God's purpose from the beginning when it says, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless His name. Proclaim the good news of His salvation from day to day. Declare His glory among the nations, His wonders among all peoples. The de declaration of who God is, His salvation to all peoples, to all languages, to all tongues and tribes, that is God's purpose. It's always been God's purpose. And we find that purpose being fulfilled even here in the book of Daniel through a pagan king. Daniel chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. And in just a moment, we're going to stand for the reading of the whole chapter. But I want to first look at these first three verses. Nebuchadnezzar the king. To all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. Had you highlighted that when you read it earlier this week? 
as you highlighted the fact that the God whose glory is throughout all the earth, the God who is being maligned because the people of Israel have been taken captive, the God whose temple has been destroyed by pagans who now think that their idols are greater than the God of heaven, it is this God who is being praised through this man Nebuchadnezzar. He writes and says, To all peoples, to all nations, to all languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I thought it good to declare the signs and wonders that the Most High God has worked for me. How great are His signs and how mighty His wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His dominion is from generation to generation. So, Psalm 96 proclaims the glory and the greatness, the sovereignty of God, because that's the King of Israel, the great King David, proclaiming God's goodness and God's greatness in His praise. And then you come to Daniel 4. And you find that King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, the king who had not known God, he gives the same adoration and same praise to God. How what is it that King Nebuchadnezzar came to know the greatness of God in this way? That's what the rest of the chapter is all about. The rest of the chapter is how King Nebuchadnezzar came to learn that God is God and I am not. And that's the same message that's needed for us today. God is God and I am man. God is God and I am not. You see, you go back to the Garden of Eden and man's desire has been to lift himself up. Man wants to be God. He wants to be his own little sovereign. He wants to be his own little master. We all have a desire to be our own autonomous little thing. We would like the world to revolve around us. But God is God and I am not. I can only see a part of the picture he's painting. God is God and I am man. So I may not understand all these things that he's doing because only God is God. Folks, that's the lesson we've got to learn this morning. Man in his pride and arrogance desires to be something more than what he really is. When we get an accurate view of who God is, we also get an accurate view of ourselves. God is God and I am not. If God is God and I am not, then it makes sense that one of the things that God hates would be pride. Pride is when I become boastful, I become proud, I become arrogant of the things that I have accomplished. First Peter 5 and verse 5 in the New Testament expresses it with this warning. He says, Likewise, you younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you in due time. In 1 Peter 5, we've often heard these verses about humility, but we didn't understand that there is another verse that's very familiar to us in 1 Peter. In 1 Peter 5, following these verses on humility, is this admonition. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Whom resist steadfast in your faith. Folks, the way that we need to resist the devil... The way that the devil seeks to devour and to destroy us is from the opposite of what we've been admonished toward, which is humility. The devil walks about seeking whom he may devour primarily through pride. The devil will do everything he can to get us proud, self-centered, arrogant, self-sufficient, autonomous, independent from God. He is walking about as a roaring lion doing everything he can to get us to be devoured by the same sin that devoured him. It was Isaiah 14 that proclaimed and announced the downfall of Satan himself. I'm going to read it to you. If you would like to turn, I invite you to Isaiah 14. If you want to come back to it a little bit later, that would be fine as well. But listen to what it was that brought Satan down. It was pride. It was his arrogance. And here's what happened. It says in Isaiah 14, beginning with verse 12, How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High God exactly what brought Satan down is the pride and arrogance of saying, I want to be God when he wasn't. And that's why he would come with a whispering hiss in the ears of Adam and Eve saying, if you eat, you will be like God. It's no wonder that pride and arrogance is a sin that the wisest man ever 
that ever lived wrote about. In Proverbs 3.34, he says, He, talking about God, scorns the scornful, but He gives grace to the humble. Proverbs 6.16, he says, Six things does the Lord hate. Yes, seven are an abomination to Him. And you know what the first one is? A proud look. God hates it. Also, he expresses in Proverbs 15, verse 25, the Lord will destroy the house of the proud. Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Proverbs 18, 12, before destruction, the heart of man is haughty and before honor is humility. You could go on and on through the Proverbs that warn us against pride and that admonishes us toward humility. Why? Because ultimately, pride is not recognizing God for who He is. And when you don't have a right view of God, you can't have a right view of yourself. And now we come right back to Daniel 4, how a man gets the right view of himself and how a man gets the right view of God. Maybe may be kind of simple this morning, but I'm going to give you an outline that I would like to follow that teaches us from Daniel 11. It's simple. It's coming from the Bible. It's coming from the New Testament. Not right out of Daniel 4, but God resists the proud and He gives grace to the humble. We're going to find two great lessons in this passage. God resists the proud. We're going to find that God gives grace to the humble. Would you stand with me, please, as we read all of Daniel chapter 4. We're going to stand to honor the Lord and His Word. We're going to begin again with verse 1 and read all of this chapter as we find the great lessons that God is God, Nebuchadnezzar is not. God is God, I am not. And how is it that we get an accurate view of God? Recognizing that he resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Daniel 4, verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar the king, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I thought it good to declare the signs and wonders that the Most High God has worked for me. How great are his signs, how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion is from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at rest in my house and flourishing in my palace. I saw a dream which made me afraid, and the thoughts of my bed and the visions of my head troubled me. Therefore, I issued a decree to bring in all the wise men of Babylon before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians and the astrologers, the Chaldeans and the soothsayers came in, and I told them the dream, but they did not make known to me its interpretation. But at last Daniel came before me. His name is Belshazzar, according to the name of my God. In him is the spirit of the holy God. And I told the dream before him, saying, Belshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy God is in you and no secret troubles you, explain to me the visions of my dream that I have seen and its interpretation. These were the visions of my head while I was on my bed. I was looking and behold a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong. Its height reached to the heavens and it could be seen to the ends of all the earth. Its leaves were lovely, its fruit abundant. In it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it. The birds of the heaven dwelt in its branches and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head while I was on my bed and there was a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven. He cried aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and cut off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts get out from under it and the birds from its branches. Nevertheless, leave the stump and root of the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tenderness of in the tender grass of the field let it be wet with the dew of heaven let him graze with a beast on the grass of the earth let his heart be changed from that of a man let him give the heart of a be given the heart of a beast and let seven times pass over him this decision is by the decree of the watchers and the sentence by the word of the holy ones in order that the living may know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men, gives it to whomever He wills, and sets over it the lowest of men. This dream I, Nebuchadnezzar, the king, have seen. Now you, Belshazzar, declare its interpretation, since all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation. But you, you are able, for the Spirit of the Holy God is in you. And then Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, was astonished. For a time, and his thoughts were troubled him. So the king spoke and said, Belshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation trouble you. Belshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream concern those who hate you, and its interpretation concern your enemies. The trees that you saw with which grew and became strong, whose height reached to the heavens, 
which could be seen by all the earth, whose leaves were lovely and its fruit abundant, and which was food for all, under which the beasts of the field dwelt, and in whose branches the birds of the air have come home or have had their home. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong, for your greatness has grown and reaches to the heavens, your dominion to the ends of the earth. And inasmuch as the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave its stump and roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, let it be wet with the dew of heaven. Let him graze with the beasts of the field till seven times pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. This is the decree of the Most High God, which has come upon my Lord the king. They shall drive you from men. You shall, your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field and they will make you eat grass like oxen. They shall wet you with the dew of heaven and seven times shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever He chooses. And inasmuch as they gave the command to leave the, trunk, the stump and the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be assured to you after you come to know that heaven rules. Therefore, O King, let my advice be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by being righteous and your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. Perhaps there may be a lengthening of your pro- prosperity. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of the twelfth month, he was walking about the royal palace of Babylon. The king spoke, saying, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? While the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice fell from heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. They shall drive you from men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make you to eat grass like oxen, and seven times shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever He chooses. That very hour, the word was fulfilled concerning Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from men and ate grass like oxen. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hairs had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. And at the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes to heaven and my understanding returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to His will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain His hand or say to Him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me and for the glory of my splendor, my honor and splendor returned to me. My counselors and nobles resorted to me. I was restored to my kingdom and excellent majesty was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, all of whose works are truth and His ways justice and those who walk in pride, He is able to put down. Thank you. Please be seated. God is God and I am not. As a result, God resists the proud. We find God resisting the proud by seeing a, a man named Daniel who had a great influence on Nebuchadnezzar. Really what happened was he had this dream. We find Daniel in three ways. I mean, this is the simple part of, of we, how we view Daniel in this passage. We find Daniel's example, the way that he lived, so that it was evident to others around him that he was one in whom the Spirit of God dwelt. It was through his holiness. It was through his faithfulness. It was through his commitment. He was able to sense this is a spirit-filled man. This is a man that's unique and different. So he had an example. Further, we find not only Daniel's example, but we find Daniel's explanation of the dream. He explained what was going on, and then we find Daniel's heart when we find his exhortation. Daniel's exhortation is king, repent, and turn. But in order to see all that, we see that interwoven with this main message, which is God resists the proud. And we find that God resists the proud. We find this truth pictured in the dream. The truth is pictured in a dream where we find this great tree being described. You know, it's often in Scripture that the Lord will describe prosperity and success, strength, with the picture of a tree. He described Egypt as being a great tree at one point. He describes the future of Israel saying, I will restore them and they will be like a great tree and all of the birds will come, all the beasts will come under its shade. It's going to provide food for everyone that's in the earth. So there's a picture of its strength. God uses that same picture when He describes a strong individual. Some of you may remember Psalm 1. Blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. 
But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night, and he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. There is strength. There is uh, prosperity. There is abundance that is pictured in this idea of a tree. And so he has a dream of a tree that pictures the greatness or the strength of Nebuchadnezzar. Then we also find the trees fall. Often, God uses again as a picture, the cutting down of a tree is a picture for judgment. When he talks about the cutting down of Nebuchadnezzar here, it's not unprecedented. It's not without other biblical references. He talks about cutting off the Assyrians like a tree falling. He talks about the cutting away of other unbelievers. As a matter of fact, when John the Baptist was preaching in the New Testament in Matthew chapter 3, he was speaking to the religious leaders of his day, men who thought that they were like trees, strong and powerful and abundant. And he turned to them and he said, look, don't you know that the axe is laid at the root of the tree? He says, therefore, repent. And bring forth fruit of repentance. Change your ways. He said, turn and start following the one true God. You think that you're like a tree, strong and independent and self-sufficient, self-righteous. He says, but God will cut you off and the, the axe is already there. It's ready. He's ready to do the chopping. That's the judgment that is being anticipated. Not only do we find the dream here. The tree, we find its greatness. The trees fall and we find that that's a picture of judgment. We understand the trees remains, that there is a stump that's going to come. But far more than God resisting the proud being pictured in this dream, we find God resisting the proud and we find the warning of the interpretation. The warning of the interpretation is the explanation that Daniel gives. Like I said, I kind of have two outlines here. Yeah, from Daniel's perspective, his example, his explanation, his exhortation. From Nebuchadnezzar's perspective, you find him learning the lesson that it is God who reigns and that God resists the proud by seeing it, that uh, God resists the proud pictured in the dream. We find him warned about it in the interpretation. And here is the interpretation that he's given, all right? As he explains it, he says, It is you, O king, that is so great. You're the one who is reigning over all, and all the earth is finding abundance in you. He says, not only are you great, it'd be wonderful if Nebuchadnezzar could just hear the interpretation and says, it is you, O king, who have grown and become strong, for your greatness has grown and reaches to the heavens and your dominion to the end of the earth. If you could stop right there, Nebuchadnezzar would be happy. After all, that was his goal in life, to leave a legacy. Have we ever heard that before? Have a desire to leave some sort of huge, lasting legacy? Well, here's Nebuchadnezzar. He was obsessed with the idea of leaving a legacy that would live forever. I'm going to talk to you about his legacy. I'm going to talk about his splendor and greatness in just a moment. But the interpretation is, King, you are that tree. And so he describes Nebuchadnezzar's greatness. Then he talks about Nebuchadnezzar's fall. He says, you are going to be cut down, King. Not only are you going to be cut down, but then there will be a stump. You're going to be restored in time. I also want to find not only... That God resists the proud pictured in the dream. We find him warned about it in the interpretation. But folks, I want to see that God resists the proud realized in the fulfillment of that dream. Because 12 months later, just a short time after he'd been exhorted to turn and repent, we find Nebuchadnezzar failing. Before we talk about the fulfillment of the dream and the breakdown of Nebuchadnezzar and how that God brought him low and humbled him, I want us to understand again a little bit more about Daniel throughout this whole thing. Understand that God is using a man here that is filled with the Spirit. The evidence of being filled with the Spirit in this is, hey, he's, he's a man who's three times, we're told. Here's a man who, in whom the Spirit of the Holy God dwells. That wasn't evident only because he was able to interpret dreams and visions. Certainly that was magnificent and God enabled him through the Holy Spirit's work to do that. There's a, there's a certain element of that supernatural, wonderful greatness of what he had done. But, folks, over the whole course of his life, 84 years or so that we're reading about here, there were only three times that we read about the magnificence of what Daniel accomplished. I mean, three times of this incredible supernatural vision, power, that kind of stuff. There must have been something more to this man than just these high points. And there was. The example of his spirit-filled life, the, the reality that in him the Spirit of God, the Spirit of the Holy God dwells, that reality was something Nebuchadnezzar had to observe and recognize day by day. 
There was the consistency of Daniel's life where he would go to God three times a day in humility. He would bow himself before God. Folks, I'd remind you, this is the man who has second, second to only the king in power over the whole nation. And yet he humbly goes to God three times a day, even into his old age. Humility. That's a sign that the Spirit of God is upon somebody. There's a genuine compassion that we find from this man toward his king. Here's a pagan king that had carried him off in captivity, destroyed his temple, and he's concerned enough about that king that he says, Oh, king, may this dream be true for your enemies and not for you. Here's a compassion, a mercy, a love that is evident in this man's life that is only a fruit of the Holy Spirit. There's a joy. Here he has this joy of, of a testimony of living in captivity and yet excelling and being able to do well. He was healthy. Instead of being eaten up with all the fruits of bitterness and anger and resentment, here's someone who is joyful and happy and content and he's nice to be around. You start seeing the fruit of the Holy Spirit even in the Old Testament character Daniel. Love, joy, peace, gentleness, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. We find that through his life and through his character, it was evident to everyone around him. In him, the spirit of the holy God dwells. Now, I'm challenging us as Christians that if God wants to use us, may he find us available and yielded and ready so that we too might have this kind of testimony that the spirit of God is indwelling in us. Now, if I can be so bold, if I can be so plain, your friends at work, the people that you associate with through, through your hobbies, the people in your neighborhood, they are not going to be wowed through super spiritual kind of things that you do. Can I even tell you? You may be able to pray in ten different languages. I'm being, you know, I'm just, I'm going overboard here. You may be able to pray in ten different languages and you might get this ecstatic kind of experiences. But you know something? The real proof of you being filled with the Holy Spirit isn't those experiences, it's not those activities and actions, it's the character of your life. That's what people notice and that's what people care about. Isn't that right? Talk in as many languages as you want to. But if your life isn't showing the character that this kind of man had, the faithfulness and the love and the joy, all those different things, then, well, as 1 Corinthians 13 says, it's a noisy gong, a clanging cymbal. All the things that you do are meaningless unless you have the fruit of that Spirit in your life. What we've seen is example. More than that, we see the explanation as he is again empowered by God. But then, would you also notice the exhortation? His exhortation, after seeing all this and saying, here's what's going to come upon you, he exhorts him, he begs him, he says, would you please get right with God and would you get right with men? You said, Jeff, what do you mean by that? Here's what he exhorts him. He exhorts him in verse 27 to King Nebuchadnezzar. He says, therefore, O king, let my advice be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by being righteous. That's where he's saying, get right with God. Then he says, break off your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. Get right with people. Get right with God and get right with man. Get a righteous standing with God. Humble yourself before the mighty hand of God. Get right with people because if you get in a right place with God, then you're going to be acting humbly toward everyone else. Why is that important? Because all of the majesty and all of the splendor and all of the greatness of Nebuchadnezzar's city Babylon was built on the backs of slaves and people that he should have been caring for. Have we ever heard this story before in this region, by the way? We're talking about it right now. Huge stores of wealth. And yet our men will drive down roads and on their way to a palace that is filled with opulence. Whatever opulence is. <laughs> On their way to this beautiful, wealthy, prosperous, gorgeous palace, they're driving by people who live in cardboard boxes. Literally, cardboard boxes all the way along. They have no sewage. They have no health care. They have nothing. There's no education. There's the arrogance of someone who says, I'm going to build my legacy on the backs of people around me. And that is exactly what Nebuchadnezzar had done. So having kind of inbred or, or included the two things together. We have Daniel's life. We have Nebuchadnezzar. And Debbie, Nebuchadnezzar is learning that God resists the proud. And he's learning it best. And he's seeing this lesson realized in the fulfillment of the dream. It begins in verse 28 and continues on through the end. 
All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. Here's what he said in verse 30. The king spoke saying, Is not this great Babylon that I have built? And he had. And it was. Folks, Babylon was magnificent. And it was all built by Nebuchadnezzar. On the backs of slaves. Oppressing everyone in his kingdom. And yet he had accomplished it for his splendor, for his majesty. You see, King Nebuchadnezzar is recognized in this part of the Babylonian dynasty as being one of the greatest kings that ever lived. His reign lasted approximately 43 years in total. This is 30 years, we believe, into that reign. 37 years more or so. I mean, you add seven years and you're into the 37th year of his reign, a short time after it. But approximately 30 years into his reign is when he's making these boasts. It may have been a little further into his reign. The first eight years of Nebuchadnezzar's reign were filled with conquest. He defeated the Egyptians and even invaded Egypt. He defeated all of Palestine and Syria and he brought people under him. After those eight years, he turned back and he began fulfilling the domestic agenda. That's where he started providing safety for his people by building magnificent walls. He built a Median wall, which was a wall north to protect from the invading Medes. Obviously, that wall didn't do a whole lot of good because the Medes and the Persians were the ones who destroyed him. He also built not only a Median wall in the north, but he also built walls around his city, Babylon. Would you show that picture of the, of the remains? Here's how we know about this. Two sources that we know about the greatness of Babylon. One source was the Greek historian Herodotus. I'm not sure if that's the right way of saying it, but Herodotus. Herodotus. He came to Babylon 150 years after Nebuchadnezzar and wrote about the splendor and majesty. We also know about Babylon because in 1899, a little over 100 years ago, some German archaeologists began digging, excavating, and they were able to find many of the remains of this city. Included in these remains would be walls such as this. These would be the outside walls of the city. And notice, these aren't just walls that are thrown up. Even the bricks that are made, these are not bricks that we think of being made by ancient people. These bricks were, though this is a black and white color, these bricks were, in, were colored. Many of them in blues and different tapestries of, of, of beauty. They were, baked, they were all made perfectly the same. 12 inches by 12 inches. All of these blocks that were made and every block was stamped with the name Nebuchadnezzar, King of Babylon. Nine out of ten of the blocks that you find in this tell or in this place, archaeological find, nine out of ten of the blocks there are found with the name Nebuchadnezzar. Later, when Babylon was destroyed, they took those bricks and they built the rest of the cities surrounding it so that 19 out of 20 of the blocks that you would find in the rest of that region are stamped with Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Can you imagine that? Here's someone who is so caught up with his own legacy that he puts his own name on every single block that people are spending all of their life building. They're forming the mud. They're putting it into uh, uh, places where they fire it. And then they put it all together. Folks, these are, are the walls. These are the walls around the city. Some of the suggestions about these walls, and if you notice carefully, there are really two walls. There are walls that are separated by a space in between so there would be an even greater level of safety. These walls were 14 miles on each side. You have 56 miles the length of the walls around the city. So that if you have 14 by 14 square, you square that, you get what? 196 miles squared within the city. You think, well, that's not that big of a city compared to the old Jerusalem it was. Does anyone here know how, old, how big old Jerusalem was? One mile square. One mile each direction. Babylon, 14 miles each direction. 200 square miles that were contained in this city that had a huge population. You have the walls and many people talk about how thick the walls were and how high. There have been different estimates and I'm not sure which is accurate, but Herodotus said that they, they may have been as high as 300 feet in height. They were so wide at the top that some estimates were that you could take four chariots side by side and race them all the way around the city. There were 160 different towers on top of these walls that were used for defense. There was a greatness of the walls that he built. But once he had the wall, once he had the city safe, you know what he did? 
He went into some splendorous, magnificent building. Would you show the next picture? This obviously is an artist's rendering because we don't know exactly what it would look like, but it was so magnificent that the Greeks, when they found it, they named it one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the hanging gardens that we find here. What you're going to find is all of what he built, and again, all of this was built on the back of slaves and oppressing people. So, as an example, if you can see it, there's going to be an orange box around this. I believe that that is representing the Temple of Marduk. The Temple of Marduk. Nebuchadnezzar built over 53 different temples to pagan idolatrous gods. This being the most magnificent of them. This was his god, and so he had built this. My understanding, again, I could be wrong, but my understanding is that it took 60 million of those bricks to make this temple. Right next to it, you see another. That huge ziggurat that it's describing is a, is a tower that he had built, the Tower of Babylon. Similar to the Tower of Babel in that, in these kind of things. There were estimates, there are estimates that say that this tower was 600 feet in height. 600 feet is one-third of the Empire State Building. I mean, the Empire State Building, we think of that as being pretty huge. This was magnificent. It was huge. Built by hand with what people had done. Not only had they built all these splendorous buildings, including the temple or, or the, the palace, but notice some other things. Go to the next one. Notice these, this group of ladies, this harem of ladies. One of them was a Median princess that, uh, that Nebuchadnezzar had married. When he married her, she had such a longing for the mountains and the lush green of her northern home that she had, she had nagged him enough. And because he loved her so much, he said, hey, let's build something that will remind her of home. So he decided to build her a mountain that was filled with all these uh, beautiful things. And so that's why he built, uh, at least that's the speculation, why he built the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. Notice also all of the lushness around, the, uh, the beauty of, I mean, look at how it's built. It's built so that it would be mountainous in its appearance. Folks, this isn't the natural terrain of Babylon. Now, Babylon was built upon a plain. He had to make his own mountain. Magnificent. And then you have all this lush. Now, if you're going to grow things up on top of a man-made mountain and your own palace, you're going to need water. The water is all the way down there. 75 feet up is where he has to get the water to be able to feed all these things. Notice the water of this next one. Go ahead. There's where the water is. How do you get water from down to 75 feet up where the trees and the things are needing it? That's where they were had incredible civil engineering and mechanics and stuff. And they were able to have some sort of mechanical system of bringing the water from the Tigris River. Or uh, it's the Tigris or Euphrates. I'm forgetting. Someone remind me. Does anyone... Tigris or Euphrates. It's one of those two rivers. I'm sorry that I forgot right now. But the river that ran through it, he had to bring the water from the bottom all the way up to the top. And you know how they did it? On the backs of slaves. Oppressing men. Building all of this magnificence. All of this splendor. All of this beauty. Incredible. And when he stood up at the top and said, Isn't this great Babylon? He wasn't lying. It was great. When he said that I have built, he wasn't lying because he was the engineer. He was the designer. He was the one who drove the whole thing. It was an incredible place that he had built. And yet, with all of that greatness, we're being reminded right here of the very words of God to Jeremiah the prophet when he says, Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the wealthy man glory in his riches. But let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understands and knows me. And that's what we're going to find from Nebuchadnezzar. We're going to find that he needed to learn to glory in God alone. Why? Because here again, the wise men that he went to for counsel interpret this dream. Were they able to interpret the dream? No. Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Look at this great splendor that he has in the riches. He says, let not the rich man glory in his riches. Why? Because I'm going to take those riches and you're not even going to be able to wear clothes by the time I'm done with you. He leaves them naked and mindless out eating grass. The man who built all of these great things, God brings him down to a place where he has no clothes. He doesn't even cut his own fingernails. His hair grows so long that he looks the part of the insane madman that he was. He eats grass. Here's the man who had all this food and wine and meat that he offered everyone else and he's left to eat grass like an ox. 
He's left out there, mindless, without his understanding, without any kind of dignity or respect. God brings him down. Those that walk in pride, God is able to abase. Let not the rich man glory in his riches. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Here's a man who had great power and strength, commanded everyone around him. Now, all he does is take, go eat, you know, grass. Can you, can you see the picture of this whole thing? And you know, if I could just limit it to Nebuchadnezzar, that would be great. Problem is, is sometimes we get the same attitude. We look at our families, don't we? Look at this great family that I have made. Look at this great business that I have built. Look at this great degree that I have achieved. Look at the great grades that I earned. Look at the great practice that I have developed, whatever it may be, law or doctor's medical practice or whatever. Look at this great military career that I've achieved. I, I mean, I'm reminded of it all the time. Look at all these nice little bars on me and, you know, awards and stuff like that. You could go on and on. Look at the great beauty and the great body that I've achieved. You don't think that God gave you that body and that He could take it away? He can and He does. Because those that walk in pride, God abases. He humbles. God resists the proud. How about this one? What a great spiritual walk I finally achieved. Have my devotions every day. I don't think there's many people who could say that. I see Sunday school. I don't think there's very many people that could put up with the kids that I put up with. (laughs) Furthermore, I go Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night. Even though this church doesn't have Wednesday night, I'm still there. You know? I mean, you could go on and on and talk about all the different ways that we become proud of our spiritual things, of our career and wealth. We're proud of our homes. We're proud of our cars. We're proud of our clothes. We can go on and on and on and forget that, folks, everything that we have is a gift from God. Any wealth that we attain is is a loan from the God who owns it all throughout all eternity. At the most, I get to use it for 60 years. Why would I give myself to achieving something that is on a loan from God and think that at the end, whoever dies with the most toys wins? Hello? You don't die with the most toys. You die. And you go without any of those toys into the grave. This health. So proud of my health. That health is a gift from God. And as soon as you start taking it for granted, there may be some other part of the story that comes right around. Your family. It's a gift from the Lord, isn't it? I want to thank God every day for what He does, that the Lord builds the house. Otherwise, we'd be laboring in vain as we build it. And you know, I've met so many families that take it for granted and soon their family is taken from them. They can't, you don't think it can happen? There are so many different ways that it can happen. When are we going to start figuring out what Nebuchadnezzar figured out, that it is God who rules over the kingdom of men? When are we going to start understanding that it is God who gives all these gracious gifts? When are we going to start understanding that God resists the proud? But that's only one side of the story. Because almost the whole chapter was filled with this message, God resists the proud, but it also comes to a conclusion that says God gives grace to the humble. Because when Nebuchadnezzar was humbled and he humbled himself under God, he said, my understanding returned to me. My reason returned to me in verse 36. My honor and splendor returned to me. Here's a man who not only has a right view of God, but now he's getting a right view of himself. And what is his right view of himself? My understanding, my reason, my honor, my splendor, they are all given to me. They're returned to me. They're gifts that are generously, graciously given to me by God. Your looks are given to you. Your business skills, your political savvy, they are gifts that are given to you. And they can be taken just as easily as they can be given. He has a right view of himself when he expresses these words in verse 35. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. 
Even me, great Nebuchadnezzar, who have risen, I've raised myself up on the backs of everyone else and lowered them, even I am reputed before God as nothing. Would you remember that it was from dust that we are formed and it is to dust that we will return? When we start getting cocky or arrogant, even sometimes when we get insecure. By the way, did you know that you can be really proud by being insecure sometimes? You're still focused on yourself. You're still focused on all, it's all about you. Well, God wants to remind you that it's from dust that you came and it's dust that you'll return. We have no reason to be boastful and proud. How do we get a right view of ourselves as Nebuchadnezzar had? By getting a right view of God. What are some of the things he knew about God? He recognized God's sovereignty. Warren Wearsby writes concerning God's sovereignty, which is the huge lesson of this chapter. How can you read a chapter like this without understanding it? It is God who rules. It is God who reigns. It is God who is sovereign. It is God who raises one up and puts down another. How could you miss it? Warren Wearsby writes, An understanding of God's sovereignty brings the believer assurance, strength, comfort, and the kind of surrender that produces faith and freedom. You want real freedom? Real freedom only comes in the surrender that comes recognizing that God is sovereign and reigns and rules. I don't understand why it is. Well, all right, I do. Sometimes I don't understand why it is that the word sovereignty, the sovereignty of God is something that we reject. We push it back. It's kind of the, one of those quiet hush words. If you're going to preach about the sovereignty of God, keep it low and don't preach very long. Whatever you do. Sovereignty. Bad word. Well, now I start understanding why sovereignty is is so despised by all of men. The sovereignty of God is despised, as Charles Spurgeon expressed it hundreds of years ago when he wrote, most men quarrel with this, the sovereignty of God. But Mark, the thing that you complain of in God is the very thing that you love in yourselves. Every man likes to feel that he has a right to do his own thing as he pleases. We all like to be little sovereigns. Oh, for a spirit, he cries. Oh, for a spirit that bows always before the sovereignty of God. I don't understand all the different ways the sovereignty of God plays out and all the different little implications of things that we could bring out. All I know is this. God is sovereign. God rules. God is king. God is God, and I am not. God is God, and I am man. Let's let God be God. Because the only place that we find real freedom, real assurance, real confidence, real victory, is in a place of surrender that says, Lord, You are Lord and Master and King. The reason we reject the sovereignty of God, folks, is because we want to be our own gods. That's exactly the issue of mankind. So, now I come back to this. What is the message that this world needs to hear? They need to know that God rules. That He reigns. They need to know that God is God and we are not. They need to know that they can come to Him. They need to understand His will, His grace and mercy, His righteousness and justice. All these things that He came to know. But you can't know God is righteous and just and gracious and merciful and restoring Someone that would humble himself before God as Nebuchadnezzar finally did. You can't know all that until you come to recognize that God is great and that God is sovereign and that He's in control. God is God and I'm not. So stop lifting myself up and arrogantly promoting myself. That's exactly what Lucifer did. If you want to resist the devil, if you want to be sober, if you want to be vigilant, if you don't want to fall into the ways that he's trying to bring destruction to you, then follow the admonition. Likewise, you younger, submit yourselves to the elder. Yeah, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you in due time. Our world needs to know that there is a God and that they are not Him. They need to know that there is a God that they can worship and serve and a God who will be gracious and will forgive and restore them. They need to come to bow before the name of Jesus. Remember, Philippians 2 says that every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. They will all proclaim Him as King and Lord and Master. It's just a matter of time. 
every language, every tongue, every tribe, they will be bowing before Him, proclaiming His Lordship and His kingdom and His authority. So they can either do it in great joy and anticipation, being beneficiaries of His kingdom, or they will do it with tears as they say, Oh, He is Lord. He is Master. I am not God after all. Just before they depart for eternity to serve themselves again through all eternity in a terrible place. Oh, we need to know that He is Lord. Would you bow with me please in a word of prayer? Lord, it's not easy to try to preach a, a whole chapter like this, but Lord, the, the message that we have heard from You is clear. You are God. And we desire to bow before You as God and to acknowledge, Lord, that we are inhabitants of the earth and we are nothing. The understanding that we have is a gift from You. The reasoning that we have is a gift from You. The wealth that we have is a gift from You. The abilities that we have are gifts from You. Everything we have is a gift from You. You are God. We are not. And may we become grateful and praise You. May we become humble and proclaiming Your goodness and Your greatness instead of proclaiming our own things. Oh Lord, would You humble us? Would You bring us to the place of surrender that is also a place of joy? With heads bowed and eyes closed, no one's looking around. Is there anyone who'd say, Pastor, as you spoke, I started recognizing I, I've been serving myself. I've been glorying in all the wrong things. I'm boastful and proud and arrogant and pretty self-confident about my riches or my wealth or, or, or my uh, wisdom or my might and my strength or my good looks. And I'm starting to re- or maybe even my own spiritual abilities. I, I've counted myself to be a really a pretty good person when the reality is God says I'm not, I'm not that good. Only He is good. And I need to come to know Him. Is there anyone who say, Pastor, would you pray for me? I don't know Him. And I want to come to know Him and to, knowing Him to know life eternal. Pastor, would you please pray for me? Is there anyone who'd raise your hand and say, Pastor, please pray for me? I see that hand back there. Thank you. And Matt, you can put those down. Is there anyone else? Thank you. You can put that down. Is there anyone else? Pastor, I want to come to know God. I know that He's God and I'm not and I want to bow before Him. Is there anyone else? Raise your hand. Say, Pastor, please pray for me. Is there anyone that then, as a Christian, that would say, Pastor, even as a Christian, I've gotten focused on the wrong things, I've become arrogant, and I want to humble myself before God and I want to, to find His grace sufficient in my time of need. And Pastor, would you pray for me as I get focused back again on recognizing that God is God and I am not? Is there any Christian who'd raise your hand and say, Pastor, please pray for me. The Lord is doing a work in my heart. Would you hold them up just for a moment, please? Is there anyone else? Lord, you see the hands and you see our hearts. And Lord, our desire is that we might bow before you as the Lord of creation. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me, please?